in the beginning. That's how it starts, right? There's always truth, fact, and fiction. What one may be, the other could be, and that other one may not be. You may never guess, but if you don't, you'll ask. Unsolved, archived, and in the shadows. These dark stories need to be brought into the light. I'm Nick Knight, and these are the Night Stories. The Mystery of the Locked Room, adapted from Emily Thompson's The Death of Isidore Fink, Chapter 1, for KMM. It was one of those nights, being shaken and then waving away the ghost, and then seemed to come from all the rooms. To the left, a piece of heartbreak. To the right, another monster who always seemed to beat me. What can you do? Take the punches and let them take everything you have. Well, as one well knows, take what you have. It means pretty much whatever you don't hide. If anyone knows me at this point, what I hide, no one finds. It was with that, the chalkboard, nail scraping of purpose came my way. Another envelope slid like a seal onto the hardwood floor. Again, Maxwell. It's never a note of longing from a heart thief. Oh well, he seems to keep some late hours. I wonder if there's another washed-up scribbler whom he jostles awake at 2 a.m. Inside was a key card to my old jungle, the Mercury, and the old newspaper clipping. It read, Perfect Crime confronts police. Laundry man shot dead. No clues left. Isidore Fink, age 30, Polish immigrant, New York, March 9th, 1929. Well, being an exiled man always seemed my style, so every now and again a fallen prince must return to his homeland to muck about a bit. I felt like corduroy and a black pen and headed out. I stepped out into the night air that nobody has yet found a way to option, but I'm sure a lot of people were probably trying. They'd get around to it. They always do. Theirs is a snake-like determination to feed for an awful long time and be content just a little bit longer. That is, until that baby python grows up and is let loose in Florida, eating rags the fine loyal companion, and everyone wondering, how did this happen? I had to get out of my head. Purpose. Remember my purpose. Let the city talk while I walk. I arrived at the Mercury roughly 3 a.m. I saw McKinley, the janitor, in the hopper light. I figured before the train meet and greet, I probably should finish my smoke and dig a little deeper into Maxwell's puzzle. It's a locked room mystery. All the spy glasses knew the play of it. McKinley would, of course, have all the pertinent details if I asked. So what better way to start a long time coming hello with a question instead of him asking me how I'm doing? I tapped the glass. The next thing I knew, I was in. 
Well, you don't look worse for wear. How's the freelance and scribbling business? McKinley always knew where to hit. He seemed to size up every insecure foundation of one's being. Eh, not so bad. Seems I'm still in demand. Hey, you don't know anything about that locked room mystery, do you? I see your copy of Murders in the Rue Morgue over there. A little Poe for the streetlight people. Of course I do. Where are you headed? Archives. Let me walk you down and I'll fill you in. Great. I forgot the layers of this building. The passageways, the various secret doors that riddle the old tombs like this one. McKinley took me down and gave me the rundown on the locked room mystery. The locked room mystery is a sort of subgenre of detective fiction in which a crime, almost always murder, is committed under circumstances, which it was seemingly impossible for the perpetrator to commit the crime and or evade detection in the course of getting in and out of the crime scene. The crime in question typically involves a crime scene with no indication as to how the intruder could have entered or left, i.e. a locked room. Following other conventions of classic detective fiction, the reader is normally presented with the puzzle and all of the clues. To investigators of the crime, the prima facie, in other words, your first impression, almost invariably is that the perpetrator has vanished into thin air. The need for a rational explanation for the crime is what drives the protagonist to look beyond these appearances and solve the puzzle. How's that? I memorized Wikipedia definitions for a hobby. Impressive. Well, Mac, it seems I've got me one of those cases in the case of Isidore Fink. I'm hoping the microfilm machine is still up and running. Oh, it is. So are the pneumatic tubes, if you can believe it. It's amazing how well-engineered those things are. Just air and pressure, pressure and air. So, do you have a definition for that, too? What do you think? Now my days are swifter than a post. Pneumatic tubes were first invented in... All right, in- all right, I'm good. Thanks. Happy puzzling and don't scratch the film. Be careful of this door, Nick. It sticks sometimes. With that, McKinley sauntered off and I made my way into the microfilm desk. To wrap my head around this, I ventured deep into the archives. Almost a hundred years deep. March 10 and 11, 1929. Isidore Fink of 4 East 132nd Street, New York City was in his Fifth Avenue laundry on the night of March 9, 1929. With the windows closed and the door of the room bolted, a neighbor heard screams and the sound of blows but no shots and called the police who were unable to get in. A young boy was lifted through the transom and was able to unbolt the door. On the floor lay Fink with two bullet wounds in his chest and one in his left wrist. He was dead. There was money in his pockets and the cash register had not been touched. No weapon was found. There was a theory that the murderer had crawled through the transom. But to do so, he or she would have had to been no bigger than a small child and would have had to leave the same way. And the door was bolted. Another theory had the murderer firing through the transom, but Fink's wrist was powder-burned, indicating that he had not been fired at from a distance. Now the theories will come, (laughs) so will the headaches. I decided after getting down and dirty in the cellar to poke up like a prairie dog, have a smoke, and see what sticks. With the aid of an illuminating machine, I hopscotch my way over to the door with a series of pneumatic tubes being my walking sticks. And just as I rounded the last one, I noticed something. An unopened envelope, crisp, white, an imprint I totally knew like the fingerprint on a lip. 
It read, To Nick Knight, from Margot. A bit baffled, I got to the door. I tried the knob, locked. Stuck in this locked room with two mysteries and a lot of time. The Mystery of the Locked Room, adapted for Emily Thompson's The Death of Isidore Fink, Chapter 2 for KMM. After a few sad tries at the door, I surrendered. For the past 33 minutes, I've been trying to get out of here, and it seems like, well, I'm right where I'm supposed to be. I'll bide my time in the right direction. I'm sure McKinley will check in soon enough. So, what does the old gal Friday have to interject into this melodrama, huh? Margot was the kind of woman who would, well, she'd make you forget to tie your shoes before you went on an escalator. She was always an arm's length away of making her part of your happily ever after. But we had quite a history, but her cunning and ingenuity always outshined even the best. Why this certain fortune cookie was left here is beyond my current powers of deduction, so I guess I might as well open it. The world won't come to an end, I guess. Dear Johnny, I know how much you hate that phrase of endearment, but facts are facts, and no, the lady does not protest too much. This one is a particularly messy kind of stage, and yet we share it, though merely players now. What did the brothers say? You always hurt the one you love. I had locked everything up, so nice and tight. I only forgot, dear, that I taught you how to pick a lock or two. Keep your mouth shut, night, and remember to let the choir do the preaching. Let them dig their own graves, and then and only then you may place that pretty little lily on the mound. Johnny, don't hurt too much. Remember, there isn't much to see or hear. Yours, Margot. Well, after reading that, all I had left was my nervous system. So I placed the paper down. Instead of reading to her cryptic poetry, I wanted, no, I, I needed to get back to this Isidore Fink character. I couldn't let heartbreak and thick, boiled-down longing bubble over and leave me a frothing mess for McKinley to find, half-rotted with one branch of majestic maple leaves. Why is that after midnight? I always feel like I'm just doing some overtime. Now, the story of Isidore Fink is a story of fear. Fear that preceded a murder. It could be that Fink's fear was specific. Maybe a fear of somebody he had harmed. And not a general fear of the holdups that at the time were so prevalent in New York City. Perhaps Isidore Fink at work in his laundry, and his mind upon somebody whom he had injured, maybe in Poland? Well, his fears of revenge were picturing an assassination of which he would be the victim. That his physical body was seized upon his own picturization of himself as shot by an enemy. What I've learned on this marble rock is this, that one of our greatest dangers lies in our own power to manifest our deepest fears. Police reports, pointless photographs, this is strange, four phonographs. They read, Mrs. Lachlan Smith, neighbor of Isidore Fink, who reported the crime. Albert Cattenbane, patrolman and the first officer to show up on the scene. Benny Applebaum, little boy who helped Cattenborn open the door. And Max Schwartz, Fink's landlord and character reference. With the aid of the light from the microfilm machine, I stumbled around like a one-footed gazelle looking for a record player. 
Finding one, desperately in need of a cigarette, I put the disc on and lit one up. I don't work here anymore. I can make a solid case in court if they decide to press charges. Mrs. Lachlan Smith record. State your name. My name. Is this way I talk in? Yes, ma'am. Right there in the horn. Oh, my name is Miss Lachlan Smith. I am 38 years old from New York, New York. I live at 52 East 133rd Street, apartment 3B. Can you tell me about Mr. Fink? Mr. Fink was a quiet man, kept to himself. He runs a laundry out of his apartment, always working. It's quite a horrible thing, you know, what happened to Mr. Fink. I was doing my usual bedtime thing for my mother. She's quite old, you know. Then these shots and commotion. I got scared and ran for help. How many shots, Ms. Smith? One, two, three, yes, three shots. Do you know of anyone who might have wanted to harm him? Gosh, no. Oh, can I say gosh? No, no, no one at all. As I said, he was very quiet, always working. He never bothered anyone or anything. I do know Mr. Schwartz, the landlord, recently fitted him with some new locks, but that is understandable living in the city and all. Thank you, Miss Smith. State your name. Officer Albert Cakenbane. And what did you see, officer? What happened? I arrived at the scene at approximately 10.50 at night, March 9th, 1929. When I arrived on the scene, Mrs. Smith said there was commotion and gunshots. What did you do then? After interviewing the neighbor, I tried the front door but found it locked from the inside. So I tried the back door but found it also had been locked from the inside. Testing the windows, I found them all nailed shut on the inside. There was no way a person could have left the premises without locking a door or window on the inside while standing outside, because the windows were too small for an adult to squeeze through. I broke a window and then asked a small boy to climb through it and unlock the front door. I was then able to get into the apartment and survey the scene. Isidore Fink lay on the floor with three gunshot wounds, two to the chest and one to the wrist. Was there any weapon? evidence left? No. No gun. None was taken. All his valuables, for what I could see, were untouched. At the time of the crime, he was doing laundry. His iron was still hot. There was no forced entry. I called for backup. I tell you, we turned everything inside and out and found nothing. All the boys thought of suicide. But, but even with my deductions, how could that be? He had a defense wound in his hand. The only way out would have been that transom window. The one I had that little boy crawl through to open the door. Thank you, officer. Hmm. Johnny, don't hurt too much. Remember, there isn't much to see or hear. Well, I'm not hurting too much, Margo. I'm just baffled. Points A to C ain't adding up. These eyewitness accounts need to incubate just a little bit. Margo, you wouldn't be shocked knowing my current situation. You would delight in the irony of it all. My own troubles, both past and present, seem to have pulled me into something both absolutely delightful and horrific. Dribs and drabs of evidence in a locked cellar of my own, passing the time in a cold case and tumbling down it with a letter that smells of you. 
you, the great pickpocket of hearts, the mistress of mischief. I'm going to attempt to hail Mary up through the tubes of this monstrous calamity of a building. I hope you'll find me, pick a lock or two, and set me free. Fantasy is not a person, but I miss it like one. Johnny. I sealed up the letter, and in the canister it went. As I tried to avoid whatever booby trap I might be setting off, I shoved it into the tube and pressed the button. You can never be pure, but you can always apologize. Booby trap was hit. My only light, gone. I stood by the tubes and lit up another cigarette. And before I could even inhale, I realized that I wasn't alone down here. I stood paralyzed with fear, as whatever was coming my way, I deserved. And much like Isidore Fink, my work wasn't done. This thing of darkness, I acknowledge mine. This ends chapter two of the mystery of the locked room. So, will Nick get out of the locked room? What's this creature we're hearing? Tune in next week for chapter three of the night stories in the mystery of the locked room. Jim Hudson, Sam Scholl, Andrea Maddow, Christy Burns, and J.D. Demers. Written by Kevin Seaman and Nicole Lignani. Production and sound by Kevin Seaman for Auto Studios. Boy Scout, maybe always the rascal. I am prepared. Kinda. A box of matches at my disposal. I make my way through the mess of a place and find other things to help, uh, well, illuminate the situation. Hand lotion, paper clips, coupons, staples, a couple of photographs. Ah. At this time, the creature's glowing yellow eyes illuminated my withering silhouette. Someone once said that courage is knowing what not to fear. But I feared I didn't know enough to show what kind of courage I actually had. That board's going to give away soon, and I'll have no choice. Don't remove the gangplank, Knight. You may want to get back on board before this is over. Fear always seems to be that big hug with a knife in its hand. That or the tall blonde who laughs at a little too much of a forced joke. Let's see what's in this one. Oh, little Debbie snack cakes. All things are hungry and all things like sugar. Always a hope that there's at least one. There's a certain charm when finding confections of youth. It seems to always have an immediate opiate effect, if you will. Easing the pain for just a moment, that is, of course, until you bite into them. A disappointment that was better off left on the shelf to admire. Now rushes through your bloodstream, consuming you over the next two days. A nostalgic hangover, if you will. Better left for a defensive maneuver. I got two. Hopefully my pitching arm is not a dead one. I lit another match trying to get sight of this critter with the yellow eyes. 
something to give me a sense of where it could be, and I had about five seconds with each strike of a match. Then, I saw it. Piercing, glowing yellow eyes from my match. It was straight ahead. I took my best Kofax in the dark and tossed a little zebra its way. Just silence. I took this interlude to head over to the door as best I could see. I figured I had about 20 seconds to start pounding at the door, so I moved forward, not down. Well, that was my first mistake. There is a certain sound you hear when you know something is wrong with you, and when it involves your head, well, you really know. You don't feel anything. You just know. The next thing I knew, I wasn't there anymore. You're not right, Nate. Johnny, don't hurt too much. Remember, there isn't much to see or hear. Yours, Margot. At times, I had some clarity. At one point, I'd look down and see I was holding a bundle wrapping of shirts. Another time, a gun. I'd look down again, saw a set of keys. Seeing a series of locks, I tried to guess which one went where. In front of this door, I looked down and I saw a gun in my hand, almost hypnotically checking for bullets. So how many are in the chamber? Three? Time, feeling, everything stopped. Was I witnessing the murder of Isidore Fink or was I committing the murder? little Debbie snack cake wrapper in your hand. What? Oh, wait. What? Margo? Margo's not here. Oh, must have been when I was heading to the door. I was locked in, you know. You set the river on fire night. So did you catch any glimpses of something when you got in? Because there was something in here with me. So you met Benson. He's a rogue raccoon who lives in the building. A raccoon. Figures. I made quite a mess. Burned all these case files? Think? You didn't happen to see a letter from Margot, did you? If I did, it's in that ash pile over there. At those words, I knew I was past everything. I felt tired and realized that I was growing old. Everything behind me and I keep going. Eh, living fossil, if you will. You need a drink. I'll deal with this later. Did you ever figure out who got in the locked room? Huh? No, no. So are these still working? I told you, Knight. The pneumatic tubes will survive the end of the world. Yes, but he that dies pays all debts. Match me, McKinley. Get yourself together. I'll meet you at Thursby's. Right, right. Okay. McKinley left me in the smoldering earth, but within the damp ash, I found a sheet of paper. So I clicked my pen and I wrote, Margo, at least I knew I was taken by a pro. Well, to say goodbye is to die just a little. And I'm not quite ready to go yet. I handled this whole thing well, like a burning marshmallow at the end of a stick. I've always felt like we didn't love each other anymore and that we were just bad habits for each other. 
And yet, like a pet fly, kept in a matchbox by a madman, your name flew off the tip of my tongue. Today, in a locked room. Signed, Johnny. With that, I walked over to the pipeline, placed the letter in its rightful place, and sent it on its merry way. I was never one for locked room ethics anyway. Eyes she hid so long and still By lids with unshed tears Hands she loosely clasped at will Through her heart was full of fears Yeah, I'm telling you, it was dying The madman from Lowell was in his righteous form Spouting lines of poetry Creating riddles to charm McKinley And leaving me, well, indifferent and alone I didn't want to discuss the case with McKinley Though he meant well, his inability to decipher certain cracks of a man's ego, well, I just wasn't in the mood for that. In the summation of all things dream and concussion related, I have only a couple of theories. That Fink knew his killer, let him in, did the deed, and left. That creeping fear that someone wanted to get Fink from his past had finally caught up. It seems to be a recurring gig as of late. Your past always catches up to haunt you. Some wild-eyed theory from a madman suggested that since he was ironing at the time, could the iron have overheated somehow, building with pressure and causing small projectiles to fly out at great speed? His deduction? Since one entry wound was in the hand, then his hand could have been holding the iron, and the other two in the chest. Well, it's a far-out theory, but hey. All of this on top of burning Margot's note as well as most of the Fink case files, well, let's just say it's been a day. I got up from my stool, I eyed the Wurlitzer, for I headed over and I asked a simple question to the bartender. You've ever been in love? No, I've been a bartender all my life. Makes sense. Where are you going, Knight? I'll be right back. I'm going to go play my tune. Johnny, don't hurt too much. Well, your play, miss. As the man says, you are the beginning and the end. And that's all there is. This ends The Night Stories, The Mystery of the Locked Room. Jim Hudson, Sam Scholl, Andrea Maddow, Christy Burns, and Jane DeMares. Written by Kevin Seaman and Nicole Lignani. Production and sound by Kevin Seaman for Auto Studios. 